Let's talk a little rock and roll history. My longtime friend Ken Best joins me today, a writer and Connecticut disc jockey who has an exhibition of rock music memorabilia from his archive that is now on display in the Plaza Gallery of the Homer Babbage Library at UConn. It opened on January 17th, and it runs through June the 30th. Ken, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. And first off, give a little overview of what this display is all about. Well, primarily it's about the scope of the history of rock and roll. I've been collecting books and other things as a media person and a disc jockey for many years. And I thought it was about time that I uh, shared it with folks because there is a lot of stuff. This What's on display is only a small piece of uh, what I've got. So give me an idea of what some of the reactions have been so far. Because you're displaying things for, among other people, a college generation whose parents weren't even born when some of this stuff came out. Well, it's it's been interesting because I, I actually spoke with the campus television station last week. And one of the kids came in wearing a, a belt buckle uh, for Rush. Uh, and I had a call the previous week, I think it was, that uh, Alain Frogley, the, the dean of the School of Fine Arts, uh, sent my way for a History Day project that an elementary school student is doing about the Beatles and their impact along with the British invasion on, on rock and roll. Uh, I think if you take a look at some of the programming that's been going on in WHUS and maybe some of the other college stations, there's a lot of classic rock that's being played. So I think people are paying, paying attention to it, including student, young, young people and students. Now, you've got part of the exhibition, which is historic album covers from some of the biggest albums of all time. Ken, do you just show the cover, or is there actual vinyl visible to the folks in the Plaza Gallery? Uh, it's just the covers. Uh, the albums in their sleeves, which are in pretty good shape. Uh, I tried to take care of my, my vinyl, as you know. It can degrade, and every time you put a needle on it, it goes down a little bit. And there are scratches, in fact... I had to make a couple of adjustments for my show this afternoon because I pre-recorded and taking some of the snap, crackle, and pop out of at least one of the tracks. So it, it's just the covers because there's heat from the lights, and it's just not a good idea to put something like that on display on uh, for 24 hours under lights. But off topic a little bit, maybe talk about the fact that vinyl is making a comeback. As a matter of fact, Record Day, I believe it's the middle of April, is coming up, and there's going to be a lot of new vinyl being released. Essentially, it's re-releases of classic albums with color differentials. It's not just black vinyl. It's blue. It's clear vinyl. Uh, people are really getting into it. And if you go down to Coles and some other what remains in park uh, department stores, rather, you can buy record players again. And they're being sought very uh, highly. So we talked about the uh, top-selling albums, your historic covers. Give me some examples of what is on display in the way of album covers. Well, I was trying to be specific about historic albums and things that were uh, top sellers. So there's never mind the Bullocks from the Sex Pistols, which... Spent 48 weeks in the top 75. It was an RIAA platinum record. Billy Joel's Piano Man was really the first release that got him some attention. The Doors' first album, the one that has Light My Fire on it. The uh, I Love Rock and Roll from Joan Jett is a particular favorite of mine. 
uh, Clouds from Joni Mitchell, Tapestry from Carol King, which is one of the mo- most important and leading uh, records in, in history. But there's also historic stuff. Like there's an archive of folk music cover from Lead Belly because of the work that he did early on that was copied and really important in the development of blues. And it just happened that there was a re-release of the original Elvis Presley album, which was simply a compilation of his singles because back in the 1950s, albums really weren't coming out the way that they would start coming out in the 1960s. So it got to Elvis Presley, black and white cover. It was actually a very highly cropped picture of Elvis holding his guitar. Uh, came out in 1956. It was reissued in 2008, and I have a copy of that that's on display. Ken, I can't do this, but I wonder if you can do it. Do you remember the first album, the first vinyl, 33 and a third album that you bought or you acquired? I really don't. I've got so much stuff. Uh, on display are the two Beatles albums, the one that was released on the VJ label before Capitol was willing to release what we now know as Meet the Beatles. I have no recollection of how I got that. I think I got it from uh, my aunt, who happened to work in a record store way back when, and this was probably mid-60s rather than the early 60s when those albums actually came out. But I do have both albums, as I do uh, in compact disc form, because there's different uh, listing of of songs because of the differential between what Capitol wanted to release and what VJ, which was an R&B label in the United States, decided to release. I think that Meet the Beatles might be the first album that I bought. I had bought singles before that. But here's my question. Which album do you have on display of Meet the Beatles? Is it the monaural or the stereo? Because I'll admit that back then I didn't have stereo. So you could go to like EJ Corvettes and for three ninety eight you could buy the mono or pony up the extra dollar and buy the stereo. I didn't need that. So I'm wondering which one do you have on display, mono or stereo? I have to admit I don't remember. Check it out, because that's part of the history of this as well. But it's still a great collection you've got there at the Plaza Gallery at the Homer Babbage Library. Did you have an opening reception? We're still working on that, because our our plan is to hopefully have a showing of the documentary of the Sam Charter's original blues movie that he made in the late 1950s, early 1960s, which came out during COVID, but we couldn't plan an event for it. So hopefully we're going to be able to arrange things probably within the next month or so for that to be an official opening, which is not uncommon that we wait a little bit to have some of the openings uh, for the gallery at the library. Ken, in your exhibition of rock music memorabilia from your archives, you even have neckties. Whose neckties do you have? Well, I have a lot of neckties. Uh, those are the ties I actually have worn over the years because my thought was, well, I had to wear a suit and a tie to go to work, and the only thing you could do to differentiate uh, from the, the baggy suits that we used to wear was, was a different tie. So I've got Elvis Presley ties, Beatles ties, Rolling Stone ties. There's even a Save the Children tie of Snoopy uh, and Woodstock. I think Woodstock's in the tie. I, haven't, I don't remember. It's, it's in the case now. Uh, with with the G-clef and some notes floating around in the air. So there's a lot of different things. And then, of course, Jerry Garcia, uh, who, like many musicians, was also an artist and a painter. 
there's been a whole line of Jerry Garcia ties issued over the years, very colorful and interesting-looking ties. There's a couple of those in there. We've had Ken Best on a number of times as a morning show guest, mostly talking about music. And one of the first times I had Ken on was talking about his 1992 book, Eight Days a Week, an illustrated record of rock and roll, which is right here next to me in the studio. I use that as a reference, and you can kind of pick a date, pick February 22nd, and see some significant event that took place on that date. Is that often one of these exhibits you've got at the Plaza Gallery right now? It seems to be. It should be. Well, it is in the case that I call the history case, which has the poster from the groundbreaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the poster from Woodstock, and a book by a guy named Pete Frame, who is from England, where he literally takes the uh, Henry Louis Gates ancestry approach in, that, in two volumes of a book that he, that he wrote, where you can see where people played in other bands before they ended up in the band that made them famous. The, the particular uh, board that we, we reproduced from the book is Fleetwood Mac that had 10 different iterations once the original band, which was actually formed by Peter Green, along with John uh, McVie and Mick Fleetwood. And you can see it go down till, of course, the 70s when Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks finally came in and created the supergroup. My book is in that collection, along with some rock and roll encyclopedias, including the very first one written by Lillian Roxon. I don't have the cover that it was on, but the actual encyclopedia is in there. And then there's a, a, a photo display case that has 19 photos, original photos used to publish the book, including the famous shadow of Jimi Hendrix at Woolsey Hall uh, in New Haven, where Paul McCartney just spoke last week. So that's really the first time I've displayed some of those images other than the ones that I have hanging in my house. You know, I dug out your book here to see what you had on today's date. And there's some tremendous stuff on a lot of the dates Today's not one of them. Uh, today, 1963, Northern Songs, the Beatles Music Publishing Company is formed. And then you list the number one songs for today's date. In 1960, it was the theme from A Summer Place by Percy Faith, number one for nine weeks. And in 1975, Pick Up the Pieces by the Average White Band. Trust me, there's other dates in this book, like February 25th. There's a whole thing on George Harrison, Buddy Holly, Please Please Me, Marvin Gaye. But uh, February 22nd, not one of the better ones in Eight Days a Week, an illustrated record of rock and roll. Were you at Woodstock, Ken? I was at Woodstock. It was actually the first concert I ever went to. Uh, I was there for two days because the rain was getting so bad on Saturday night that my car was starting to sink in the mud, and I knew if I lost the car, my father would uh, not be very happy. So uh, we, we tried to move, and there was no place else to go, so we ended up continuing to drive back to New Jersey, where, where I was from. But, yeah, I was, I was there. And interestingly, over the years, I would meet and actually interview people who were at Woodstock, including musicians like Richie Havens and Arnold Guthrie. And most interestingly, uh, Chip Monk, his name was Edward Beresford Monk, he was the lighting director uh, who was making announcements as part of the stage announcement, and he had the infamous, uh, if the brown acid is not particularly very good, so please be aware of that, okay? And that's on the Woodstock album that came out in vinyl in 1971, I think it was. 
Part of your exhibition includes posters, and a lot of those posters were pretty big. So you got room on the walls to put all those up. Give me an example of what some of the posters you've got on display are. Well, the, the most significant one is the Bob Dylan poster that Milton Glaser, the famous graphic designer who did the I Love New York campaign, the rainbow hair sh- uh, profile of Bob Dylan, which came as a folded up poster in the Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits album, as it turned out, uh, number one, I believe it was in 1966. That's in the case. The big poster from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as I mentioned. And then there's a famous Willie Nelson cover on uh, Rolling Stone magazine where he's wearing the uh, uh, Stars and Stripes hat, known as the Uncle Sam hat. Uh, I don't remember where I got that, but I, it is in the poster uh, cabinet uh, in the... I think it's in the album section. So of all the things that are on display at this exhibition of rock music memorabilia from your archives, do you have a favorite thing? This is like picking your favorite kid, but what is it that you like the best? Well, it's actually the the, the Hendrix photo because it's considered one of the best photos ever taken in rock and roll. Jim Marshall, even Linda McCartney, uh, Lynn Goldsmith, I've got Lynn Goldsmith's book in there. That's a very unique photo. It's, if, you, if you have never seen it, and I know you have because it's the cover of my book, it's a spotlight against four gigantic Marshall amplifiers, some of which are ripped. And there's a, just a shadow. It's got a Fender guitar head, which I think everybody knows what that looks like, fringed, uh, things coming down from the arms and I think you can actually see the wire coming from the guitar and if you know rock and roll music and you know guitarists you know who it is without needing to be identified it is Jimi Hendrix actually in reverse uh, and Joe when he wrote about it said I, I, I looked through the lens and I said that's a great picture I need to get it he snapped several and he ended up using that one it's been in Q Magazine, it's been all over the world as, as one of the great photos ever taken in rock and roll. Yeah, I've been looking at it right now on the cover of your book. And the display of Ken's musical archives called Good Music, an illustrated record of rock and roll, is on display until June 30th at the Plaza Gallery of the Homer Babbage Library at the University of Connecticut with photos, albums, books, posters, memorabilia, and even the neckties we talked about, too. What about books? What kind of books are on display, and are they able to be read by the people, or you can see them from a distance, maybe find it later on on your own? Well, there are a lot of books that uh, might be out of print uh, because they have several different editions of things, like uh, what are, I guess, considered professional desk references, uh, books like the Billboard chart books that start in 1955 when uh, the rock and roll era begins, once rock around the clock hit number one on the charts uh, after it was heard uh, by Bill Haley and his comments as the opening to Blackboard Jungle. Uh, that's when we, we start marking the, the charting of, of rock and roll and pop hits. And Billboard put out a whole line of books, and I don't know that I do very much of that today because everything's, of course, online. But there are books about number two singles, number one hits, pop albums, one-hit wonders, things like that. So I've got groupings, like in the album case, there are books like that, including uh, Green's uh, book of songs by subject, where literally 
you can look up a subject by word or by phrasing and find a bunch of songs and the albums that they were originally on uh, listed there, which is how a lot of people can you know, put together set lists. I also wanted to have the historic perspective. There are a couple of books that discuss the uh, history of the development of 45 album covers, which didn't really happen uh, for a very long time. And the original album design that was done uh, sometime in the late 1940s, where when classical albums were the only way that you could, could uh, find those things. And then there are scholarly books, including some uh, like uh, Professor Jeff Ogbar, who wrote a hip-hop book. That's in, in the case, one of the cases, uh, grouped as scholarly books. And then the biographies and autobiographies of people like Keith Richards, Little Richard, uh, James Brown, uh, my old friend Harvey Brooks, who played with Bob Dylan and Miles Davis. Uh, he finally got his uh, autobiography out a couple of years ago. And links to some of these things are on the WHUS website. You can hear the interviews that I did with those folks. So there's a lot of books in, in the exhibit because I thought, well, this is a library. We need to have some focus on the books. And not only have you done radio a lot, but you've also done a lot of writing as well uh, from newspapers in Bridgewater, New Jersey, and the Stanford Advocate and the Greenwich Time in Connecticut, syndicated stories that the AP has run, the LA Times, Washington Post News Service has run. You were a contributing editor for the Connecticut News, for the New York Times as well. So you've done plenty of writing over the years, and that means you've done interviews over the years. Drop a few names on us, Ken. You've met some important people in the rock and roll business. Well, starting in the mid-1970s when I was working in, in uh, Bridgewater, New Jersey, which was a Gannett newspaper, which I think today is still one of the larger chains, I got to do a lot of good interviews. Uh, when Bruce Springsteen was coming off of his legal issues in the mid-1970s, and he was coming back out on tour with a new recording, because part of his problem was he couldn't get into the studio. He could play, but he couldn't record. He was uh, coming back to New Jersey for the first time. I uh, put a request in the Columbia Records asking if I could interview him, and they, they did what a lot of people did back in those days. They were trying to protect their, their artists and said, oh, no, no, he's going to be with his family. He's not going to have time to do that. So I go to the concert. I write a review, I go home, and then the next morning uh, I'm awakened in the middle of the morning, which is the middle of my night because I was working at night, and it was a message from the office, Columbia Records wants to talk to you. So I call, and they said, oh, well, Bruce came in and said, how come nobody in New Jersey wants to talk to me? So I went back the next night, watched the third show, and of course Bruce is notorious for his uh, three- or four-hour concerts. And so sometime after midnight I got to go backstage with a couple of other local reporters, and we spent an hour or so talking, and <laughs> I got a pretty good interview out of it. Uh, I talked to Arlo Guthrie uh, at an 8th Avenue uh, Indian restaurant after a show at Lincoln Center. Uh, Meatloaf on his first tour was stopped at Rutgers, and before the show started, I, I went in and, and had a sit down with him and Jim Steinman, who was his collaborator, and they ended up getting in a food fight because that's just the way that they were. I want to see pictures of the food fight. Well, I describe it in my story, which <laughs> I found, actually. There's a website that I can go to to find old uh, newspaper stories from way back when, uh, actually whole editions of newspapers. I was able to find that, but I haven't figured out a way to get it up uh, 
on a website yet because of the, the way that they have to be downloaded. <laughs> Speaking of way back when, if you go to our website right now, WILI.com, and look on the uh, morning show guest page, you'll see a picture of Ken way back when. Who were you interviewing in that picture? That's pretty interesting. Uh, the guy I'm in- interviewing is, uh, is Benjamin Franklin Logan Jr., who was an electrical engineer at Bell Labs during the day. But uh, he was called Tex, Tex Logan, and he's a fiddler. He played with Bill Monroe and with Olden in the Way, which was Jerry Garcia's uh, bluegrass band, along with Peter Rowan. Uh, there was a, a bluegrass festival uh, at the Englishtown uh, Music Hall in New Jersey, and they were playing there. And because of uh, Logan's uh, proximity, because the Bell Labs were within our circulation area for the paper that I worked for, it was very interesting to speak with him because he went to MIT and they, they made him choose between uh, finishing his, his doctoral degree or playing music. And he opted to play music. He eventually finished his degree and was actually involved with uh, the Echo Communication Space Satellite. That was one of the projects that he worked on. And he also had some hand in the early development of what we now know as MP3 files. Wow. Good story about the old days of music, and you can also see that picture at WILI.com right now. So uh, besides this project, which has your musical archives on display at the Plaza Gallery of the Homer Babbage Library through June 30th, you've retired from your days when you were the editor of the UConn Magazine for 10 years. You covered the School of Fine Arts at UConn for UConn Today for eight years, and you were a co-founder of the Yukon 360 podcast before you retired in June of 2021. It sounds like you're staying pretty busy, even in retirement. Well, you can't just play golf all year round. Not that I'm very good at it, but yeah, I've been doing some freelance writing, uh, actually for our friends down at, at Yale University, because I used to work for the state, so it's hard to get set up doing that again because I'm retired and they're sending me a check every month. But yeah, I, I've continued to, to write. I'm doing my show. Uh, actually, today I'll be on it between three and six as I am Wednesdays this semester at WHUS. I've been trying to organize a couple of other writing projects, maybe connected to music, which is why I started uh, putting the uh, archive uh, exhibit together because I've realized over the years, having gone to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and other museums, including the ones on campus at UConn, the Benton, the Contemporary Art Galleries, the uh, the Library Galleries, and the one that's in the Jorgensen. There's a lot of stuff that's out there that I think people should see. And I've always thought that the material that I have, including some of my press materials, uh, like the original album press kit from Saturday Night Fever, which I have black and white photos of John Travolta doing his famous pose in the uh, in the white suit. Uh, I, I you know you want to share that stuff with people because it's interesting. How did you get involved in radio in the first place? You know, sometimes people take an unexpected path. I'm an HUS guy myself. That's where I got started. But when I came to UConn, radio was not on my radar. How did it start with you? Well, I did a little radio at WPK and in Bridgeport when I was an undergraduate at uh, the University of Bridgeport. Uh, I, I, did, I, I did football and some basketball uh, analysis. I, I was you back then, but not really. I did a couple of games a year because my main job was being the editor of the campus newspaper for my last two years. But when I came back to Connecticut in 1983, 
Uh, I had known Bruce Webster from the time I was an undergraduate. He was the longtime coach at um, the University of Bridgeport for the Purple Knights. But the following year, in August of 1984, he called me. He said, we, we need to have a press conference. We have a new recruit uh, that I think people are going to want to know about. So I go over to the Harvey Hubble Gymnasium, which is the small gymnasium on Long Island Sound uh, campus of, of the University of Bridgeport. And I walk into the gym, and I, the biggest guy I had ever seen in my life was standing there. His name was Minute Bowl. And from that point on, I was deeply involved with supporting the program because for some reason, the students in those days weren't interested in doing some sports. So I had to travel with the team anyway. And so I met my now very old and good friend, Walt Dobis, who became the analyst. And I became the play-by-play guy for 12 years doing basketball games on the radio. And then after 12 years, we were both tired of doing it. We had other things to do professionally. And so the program director at the radio station said, well, you know, make a tape and we'll put you on the air. So I did, and they did. And so since then, I've been on the air, either in Bridgeport or in stores, since 1995 or 96, uh, doing music. And, Ken, you know sports, too. In fact, you and I have driven together down to the NCAA regionals in Bridgeport to watch the UConn women play. But uh, tell me what your impressions were of seeing Manute Bowl as a player at the University of Bridgeport. He was 7 feet 7 inches tall, tied with George Murasan as the tallest player in the history of the NBA. Murasan's son, by the way, plays at Georgetown right now. But what kind of a player was he at the University of Bridgeport? Well, he was very unique, obviously. He was the biggest player in the country. He was playing what you know is really considered Division Two. We didn't have the shot clock back then. People would just freeze the ball and wait for uh, him to try and get in foul trouble or they would try and surround him. It didn't make any difference. Uh, he had a good set of skills, but he hadn't played basketball a whole lot. His path to Bridgeport was originally supposed to be heading him to Cleveland State University. Couldn't get into there. His English was good. He, he had an English as a second language program at the University of Bridgeport, which helped. Uh, and he was a very good guy. He's a very smart guy. He, he sometimes played with the media. At one point when he didn't want to talk to somebody, uh, his, his teammates said, well, uh, this was a network television reporter. I said, well, she can fix your television because he was a big fan of uh, the A-team at the, in those days and his TV and his dorm wasn't working. And then two hours later, the reporter was on the floor trying to fix his television set antenna so he could watch TV. Uh, but uh, he was very loyal to Bridgeport and to his friends. He was a teammate, uh, as I think most people know, of Chris Mullen, the Hall of Famer uh, from St. John's. But his br- kid brother, John, whose daughter, Brooke, plays for Villanova now, was a teammate of Manute's. He was in the backcourt with him. So he, he did a lot of things uh, over the years. He got very involved with the Sudanese uh, political situation. He started sending a lot of money there. Uh, in fact, he had contracted an illness that ultimately killed him when he was on one of his uh, humanitarian missions to Africa uh, back, uh, I guess, it's probably 20 years ago now. Yeah, he died in 2010. 
Great story about Manute Bowl, but even better stories about the illustrated record of rock and roll, good music, the exhibition of rock music memorabilia, which you can see right now at the Plaza Gallery of the Homer Babbage Library at UConn. It runs through June the 30th. It's all collected from the music archive of our guest this morning, writer and Connecticut DJ Ken Best. Ken, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for joining me and hope people go see your exhibit. Thanks, Wayne. Good to talk with you.